Hello, and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter, Gabby Barco, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Good morning, Kale. How's it going, Gabby? It's good. It's good. Uh, We have a lot to get through today, so it's exciting. Um, If you're new here, this is Modern Retail's newest podcast, which drops every Saturday morning. Every week, we break down the biggest business headlines in the retail world. Today, we take a look at Allbirds' first year as a publicly traded company, Shein versus Timu, and why every brand wants to be premium. Love it. So much to cover. We'll start with Allbirds. They are one year into being a publicly traded company. They've had a lot going on, but this week they reported their full year earnings for 2022, and their execs is pretty much admitted that they've been making some mistakes over the past year that's uh, put them a little bit in um, murky waters when it comes to growing. <laughs> so why don't you break down the numbers, Kale? Sure. So uh, it was founded in 2016. The Q4 results said that uh, they got $84.18 million in revenue, um, which uh, was a significant miss from the expected $96.8 million. Um, and that was just for the fourth quarter. Um, losses hit $101, over $101 million, which is double what it was in 2021. Um, I mean, all of these companies are reporting, not all, but a lot of you know the newly public DTC companies are, are reporting mounting losses. I do think the fact that Allbirds missed revenue expectations in Q4 is uh, a pretty big deal because that means that the holidays did not go very well. People did not buy their friends and family Allbirds shoes, which I think um, Allbirds thought that they would. So, and I think uh, at the at the um, uh, earnings, the company actually said that they were they found the holiday season to be extremely disappointing, um, and it just points to Alberts is an interesting company because they were a much vaunted DTC company. They went public um, a year ago. They were one of the ones that was doing everything well, started online and then expanded to retail. And they've been pitting a lot of the growth on specifically brick and mortar retail expansion. And clearly, this has not been working out as well as Alberts hoped. Yeah. And uh, we should mention that, you know, you mentioned that Allbirds was founded in 2016. They had a pretty quick road to an IPO, pretty much five-year splat. Um, It's not unheard of. It's been happening more and more among uh, D2C brands or really, really well-funded brands. But last year, uh, as we covered, we did see a lot of these brands exit. It's uh, Allbirds, Warby Parker, um, a couple of others that are missing. But there's a, there's a lot going on in this space, but now we're sort of seeing the fallout for, or just, you know, the struggle of being publicly traded, having the pressure to grow profitably. Uh, this past week, we saw ThreadUp, RealReal uh, have basically similar results. So yeah, what do you, what do you think this means for the overall e-commerce space? Well, I mean, Allbirds is is a company that a lot of people are looking towards. You, you mentioned this earlier, but just to really emphasize it, Allbirds raised a lot of money. Um, I think 
I think in total, before the company went public, it raised over $200 million in funding. Its last Series E, I'm looking at Crunchbase right now, was in September 2020. That was $100 million. It's a lot of money for a shoe brand. I mean, you know, shoe, you know, it's a global shoe brand. It wants to be huge, but also it shows that there were a lot of companies, especially, you know, a couple of years ago that were making a lot of raising a lot of money. Um, And so they were sort of put up against a wall in terms of what the next step was. They can't continue raising venture capital forever. And so they have to go public in order to continue, you know, growing at the rate that they are expected to be growing or, or something else. And so when you see a company like Allbirds that was doing so well, at least in investor eyes for so many years, and then now is stumbling and not hitting the growth numbers it should be hitting, all and we're you know we're seeing this with other companies you know like Real Real which is also public like uh, ThreadUp which is also public these are all companies that raised a great amount of money and they were supposed to be the next business models for for retail it shows that you know they're not there's a there's a lot of uncertainty ahead in terms of whether they're going to be able to grow at the pace investors want them to grow um, mm-hmm. which is always the we've been having this conversation for years now like I I can remember writing a story I think in 2019 about how. DTC brands or e-commerce brands were going to hit a wall because they are they've raised so much money they're expected to grow at such a fast clip but they might not be able to because retail is a tough business and you can only you can only find as many eyeballs cheaply as you know as you can and then you have to figure out a way to expand and there's not a cheap way to expand and Allbirds is a good example of it because like the company is focused on brick and mortar expansion brick and mortar is really expensive mm-hmm. but they clearly can't rely on just being an online shoe retailer either. So yeah, I think, you know, the last few months they've doubled down on wholesale, which is a strategy that a lot of brands actually are starting to do in year one or two. It's something we cover week in and week out. Uh, They've sort of held off on it, uh, similar to Glossier, you could say, uh, over the years. And, you know, you could kind of assume that eventually... (laughs) They kind of had to go with the Nordstrom's uh, partnerships and all of those. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the category. I mean, these are the sort of hot, sustainable sneakers uh, that were coming out in 2016. I feel like every tech person I know, you know who you are, was wearing them. Um, and But, you know, the shoe category, this category specifically, is an interesting one for them to be facing these challenges because there are brands that are actually killing it. I mean, we see Hoka, we see uh, On, which I just recently learned how to pronounce. Um, you you see a lot of these brands that are, you know, just very hot amongst consumers and are doing really well publicly even. And so what do you think? Well, this is more of an opinion, but is it, could it be that the styles and the assortments are not connecting with people right now? Yeah, well, I think that we're in a, you know, we want to focus towards culture and fashion. We are in an interesting moment that is very different than it was three years ago. You're totally right that all birds rose to fame because it was the shoe of of like the tech industry and, you know, upwardly mobile millennials. It was part of the class of people who were buying away bags, things like that. And I think specifically in apparel, the companies that are doing well are like, are like Deckers and are like Hoka. And they're, you know, I sort of somewhat disagree, especially when it comes to Hoka. There was an article, I I believe, in CNN a couple of weeks ago that was like, Hoka's doing so well. And it's because, I forget exactly how they said it, but they were like, it's uh, it's ugly 
or I don't know, ugly and dad shoes. And I don't think Hoka are dad shoes, but I do think that they have a very certain aesthetic that speaks to the current moment that we're in. So Deckers is really interesting because they own a company like Hoka, which, uh, you know, as I said, is being known as sort of, I don't know what the right word is. It's, it's, it's you know, the, it, it was known dad shoe. as like an outdoors, uh, I feel like all the hiking girls I yeah. know love Four it, but now it's just whatever. Become, yeah, but it's yeah. become so mainstream. I mean, you just see people on the subway wearing it. It's become, you know, an urban style. And I, I, this is a personal opinion. I think it strikes a balance between the sort of sustainable and then the chunky dad shoe that's become sort of the default of the last few years. But, you know, our personal taste aside, I, I do want to talk about Decker's specifically is an interesting company that's seen a resurgence because even Uggs have made a little bit of a comeback in the past few years and especially, you know, the slipper styles. And so it feels like a little bit of a halo effect for that company. So maybe it's not fair to, you know, compare something like Allbirds to them because their style is a little bit more limited. But I actually want to get you, I think it is okay to compare them because let's talk about Crocs. Crocs is also yeah. having a huge moment and that that's speaking to Gen Z, sort of ironic Gen Z kids who want comfort, but also want something that's kind of silly to put on their shoes. And if Uggs and even like Hoka is having that moment, Allbirds doesn't fit with that. And so it seems like mm. the companies, especially in foot apparel and, you know, footwear that are doing well are the ones that are able to tap into whatever the current cultural zeitgeist is. And mm -hmm. this isn't to say that Allbirds is failing at that, but just that the ones who are really succeeding are doing something a little bit different and realize that the cultural conversation and the people who are leading, I don't know, the fashion trends for more mainstream America are looking for something a little bit, a little bit different than what Allbirds has traditionally provided. Right. And it'll be interesting to see because, of course, these are trends and tastes are constantly changing. So we'll see how it pans out um, on a more of a long-term sustainable track. Do you have anything else to add on this topic before we move on? Not really. I mean, like, I think that Allbirds is going to be a company that we're going to be watching for, for a long time, but specifically because it and Warby Parker and a couple of others are the real uh, temperature checks we can get about what's going on with the DTC brands that raised a bunch of money, you know, were founded in the mid-2010s and are now trying to become the next retail superstars. Um, and so, you know, Warby also uh, recently released its earnings, and we can talk about that later or whatever. It's not really important to this conversation. But my point is, is that it's interesting that, you know, Allbirds is not doing as great as people thought it would do. And this will be a really interesting thing to keep tabs on in the year to come, specifically as tastes change, as the economy changes, and as, uh, you know, other, other DTC brands try to figure out what they're going to do in order to grow. Yes, we'll keep an eye out on that. Next up is the Fast Fashion Wars. It's Shein versus Timu. They're duking it out in the press. Kale. Give us a little bit of a breakdown. This is this is a little bit of a saga that we here at Modern Retail have been following. First, I want to say I didn't know it was Timu, and I just checked, and you're totally right. So thank you for quietly correcting me. Good you job. You know what? I have to admit, it's a little bit inside baseball. I actually Googled the pronunciation an hour ago. So. Wow, good for you. I would have been mispronouncing it this entire time. So thank you. Um, so I, you know, we we've written about Shein a great deal at Modern Retail. We've begun writing a little bit about Timu. Uh, 
Timu, for those who don't know, is owned by PDD Holdings, which is the owner of Pinduoduo, which is the insanely popular Chinese e-commerce app. And PDD is trying to get into the U.S. with a new app called Timu, which is essentially cheap things. You want something cheap. I've been on the website. You can get a shirt for $2. You can get a tchotchke for $1. It's all about, it's trying to be a rung below Amazon, I would say, in the but with a similar vibe of, I click this, I get it, it's in front of me in, an, in a day or so. Um, and that's been Sheehan's playbook for the last, you know, Sheehan is actually an older company. It's been around for over 10 years, but the last two years, it's really skyrocketed because it has become the new fast fashion player and it became one of the most downloaded apps, I want to say about a year and a half ago um, in the US and became just sort of... Uh, sort of the online version of H&M. It was really popular with Gen Z. It was sort of the new way that people were buying clothes. And then there were a lot of conversations about sustainability, about fast Mm -hmm. fashion. Sheen has been trying to clean up its act in terms of uh, how it is perceived, whether or not it's sustainably sourced. Uh, There are a lot of questions pertaining to that. We don't need to get into that right now. But Timu is trying to sort of break in the same way that Sheehan is with doing a lot of big, splashy marketing campaign. It did a really intense, uh, super not intense, but a really <laughs> expensive Super Bowl ad. Uh, and it's been seeing its numbers grow. It's quite popular on the download charts. But the most recent thing, and why we're talking about it, is because Sheehan is now alleging, and I believe suing Timu, saying that it's uh, Timu is asking influencers to uh, denigrate the brand online. Pretty much, it's allegedly paying influencers to be like, Shein is crap. Um, And uh, Timu says this isn't true, but it shows that Shein is definitely uh, wary of Timu as as a big competitor, and Timu is definitely encroaching on its space. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, This was broken down in a lawsuit that was, uh, I mean, it was just reported on this week by Reuters, but it was filed in December, which also accused it of, um, you know, I guess using the term she in itself uh, in promotions or asking influencers to use it. I think some of the campaigns were saying, you know, you know, I gave up she and I'm a Timu girl now and things like that. And so, uh, you know, there's it's kind of a gray area, but I can see why that, you know, that she and is wary and is uh, filing the lawsuit. But at the same time, I mean, I think it's an interesting time for this right now because we now have a two horse race in, you know, this sort of Gen Z fast fashion e-commerce app uh, wars, I guess, if you will, um, where, you know, a lot of uh, customers are shopping this way and it sort of really negates a lot of the sustainability uh, reports that we see coming out that say Gen Z care about sustainability, but then they also want Two dollar t shirts. So there's some mixed messages there. But uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on where this you know type of supply chain drop shipping based e commerce is going? Because it seems like Tiamu is determined to be here to stay. I mean, I think that it shows that there definitely has a lot of legs. And if you are uh, well capitalized, you you are likely to be able to make it work. These types of companies have been doing well in other geographies like Asia, and the fact that uh, there's yet to be a clear leader for cheap e-commerce goods, especially in the apparel space, I think has been uh, a bit surprising in the U.S. And, you know, I should say Amazon has tried to be an apparel leader in the U.S. for years now and has failed 
for a variety of reasons and has tried different strategies. The latest one is a little bit more premium uh, with the style stores. It's trying to go into department stores. And so it seems to me that they're, you know, the fact that Shein has been able to grow at the rate that it's growing. Um, and, you know, the question is, can do the economics work? And I think that right now these two companies are well-placed to to try it because I think it was reported that Shein just raised $200 million. Uh, Timu is owned by the parent company of Pinduoduo, which is just killing it in China. And so uh, it just shows that there is clearly a demand. And like I can speak, you know, anecdotally about my niece uh, a year ago was talking about all of the the clothes that she was getting from Shein. And my mom, you know, my mom would every day be like, what is this? And it'd be a package of a new blouse <laughs> that she had spent you know, $3 on. And so clearly there is a market for this. And then if they are able to figure out a way to make it work uh, financially, then, then yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's, I'm, I guess my ultimate point is I'm surprised that it's taken this long for there to be something like this, specifically because fast fashion has controlled the, controlled jet not gen z but younger generations for so long like you remember when we were young we would go to h&m you know zara places like that and that was where we bought clothes you know yeah okay some of us still buy zara but you know let's not go there <laughs> um, i'm a uniqlo but, buy yeah yeah um uh, but yeah i think and she and we should mention is um you know has the advantage of time it's been here a little bit longer there's uh reports of it uh maybe going public later this year. So we will see. We'll see, uh, you know, who will come out on top in this space. Next up is a feature in the New York Times that covers a topic that's been on my mind a lot lately, which is premium premiumization. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's a strategy that I've just had a lot of brands mention to me that this is what they're going with. They're going to premiumize all of their offerings, all their chocolates, all their, everything's better for you now, as you know. So let's talk a little bit about what that means and maybe some of the examples we recently covered. Uh, this is a hot new buzzword for, especially for CPG brands. Yeah. So, I mean, well, can you tell me the, what, what are some recent examples of, a, of companies that are going premium? Because um, I find this fascinating and it's, I think that there's also, we, we've talked about this, I think last week was the rise of private label. And I want to get into this more because there's like sort mm -hmm. of two opposing polls that are happening. But I found this article really fascinating, really true. So what, it, what Gabby, because I feel like you're the expert in this space more than I am. What are some <laughs> of the, the, most, uh, the most interesting examples of premiumization that you think are out there? To me, it's interesting that it's happening amongst legacy and ex established companies. So I think most recently I talked to Barilla, which just launched a premium line to sort of compete with the hot new pasta startups. Uh, Ferrero is uh, now, you know, trying to reorganize its entire portfolio to reflect more, more premium taste and essentially try to tap that middle ground market, you know, of obviously confectionery and chocolate uh, lovers who want something a little bit higher end than let's say a Kit Kat, but, you know, aren't going to go for full on, high-end products. And so it's just been a really interesting strategy. Um, I think last year, I believe you talked to uh, Keurig about their premium coffee uh, strategy, you know, with the sort of K-cup space. So 
it's something that we see where, you know, a company that normally offers this mass market products, you know, in the grocery aisles now wants to be a little bit higher end and tap a different type of customer. So that's my personal definition of it. But, um, oh, and I should mention that it's, uh, it's a playbook that's actually borrowed. This is some analysts have talk to me about this. It's barred from the alcohol industry. So there's a lot of reports in the last few years where um, top shelf, quote unquote, or premium spirits are actually outpacing uh, lower end, especially, you know, uh, yes, like in uh, the tequila, the whiskey categories. And so it's interesting to see that that's where a lot of these companies are betting their hedges, which is basically selling less products to less people, but you know, generating more revenue. Got it. Got it. I loved the example in the New York Times um, story about WD-40, which is Mm. the exact opposite of a premium product. Like (laughs) everybody gets WD-40 because something's broken and they just need it to be lubricated or whatever. And I guess WD-40 said if they make a special feature like a new cap or a new way to use it and charge a little bit more that does really well, which is wild to me that even like, plumbers and handymen are responding to the premiumization trend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, we're seeing it a lot also as, um, you know, quarterly earnings come out. uh, The fact that, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that inflation is also maybe playing a part. Uh, I think a lot of companies maybe realize that they could just bank on a little bit more of a premium shopper to uh to maybe trade down or trade or some people maybe trading up realizing that their favorite brands are offering um a little bit more of a luxury good uh so yeah it it is interesting but it does sort of pose the question what does it mean for your run of the mill you know typical all american grocery brand that you know maybe not going to go in this direction will they be left out in the cold yeah, I I think it's a great question and maybe some of them will try it. There's one thing and I don't think I don't think this has been hit on in any of the stories yet and maybe tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like there might be a corollary thing happening that's the premiumization of of lesser products or like th- there's more of a conversation around private labels mm-hmm. um and who they are and you know we talked the other week about Kirkland, you know, in some ways Kirkland is considered premium private label product. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are a lot of, uh, Target's a really great example of this as a company that launches a lot of private labels, but tries to make them into their own branded things like, um, yeah. oh my gosh, what's the name? Fred, oh, good and Gather. Stewart. Good and yeah, Gather. Like, I think that Good and Gather is a great example of a pre- premiumized private label. Um, yes. And so I feel like this is, you know, this is not a new phenomenon, but I do wonder if that's going to be the playbook going forward for, um, for companies that are trying to target sort of the lower end of things is that they're going to try and make their cheap products seem more premium rather than just being a generic cheap offering. Yeah. And uh, I do wonder, you know, now that more and more of these uh, brands are even getting, you know, the non-GMO and organic certifications, you know, that's becoming more normal in the Target and Walmart aisles. Uh, We will start to see, you know, sort of a default line of what the customer expects. And then this is a little bit of an aside, but sometimes I do wonder maybe this, you know, emerging better for you category, you know, in the hot startup CPG space has had a little bit of a a ripple effect on this. And, you know, the the sort of disrupted, if you will, 
uh, established brands are realizing, oh, we can we can charge three ninety nine for a protein yeah. bar. Why not? You know. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that I do imagine that, especially as companies are going to try and raise their uh, their bottom lines or make them you know pad their bottom lines, even even the lower tier brands are going to try and find ways, even albeit if they're even hidden. Uh, to to premiumize their products because that seems to be where things are going and so that might mean making you know one skew that's a little bit more expensive it might mean trying to reinvigorate the brand in a certain way or you know it might mean you know I I feel like we we've written a little bit about this but there are a lot of CPG brands that are launching new sizes of things you know smallers that are like better than for you and in some ways that's kind of a way to premiumize the product because it isn't just bulky family size it's it's something that's a little bit more bespoke and the idea is that it's you know, it's a, a new version of a product. It's just that you're getting less of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely see it in the packaging, which is maybe a little bit sleeker, a little bit shinier, um, and makes you, uh, look, look with the time. So watch the space. <laughs> um, so that's a wrap on this week's topics. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to rate and give us a review on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this it really helps us out a lot. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast, hosted here by Kale, to hear interviews with a lot of different interesting executives and industry leaders. That one comes out on Thursdays. And then, of course, come back every Saturday morning for the Modern Retail Rundown. Kale, who do you have on next week? Do you want to give us a little bit of a hint or a preview? Sure. I spoke with Impossible Kicks, which is uh, a sneaker resale company, but instead of being online like StockX, uh, Impossible's focus is um, uh, stores. And so they've opened a huge amount of stores over the last few years. It was a fascinating conversation. I love all things sneaker-related, even though I'm not a sneakerhead. So hope you all give it a listen. I'm really excited for that. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. See you next time. See ya. See ya.